Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Real Talk. As ever, I'm your host Anna Pajajski and this episode is a real treat. Here I talk to artist Shelley James about glass and I started by asking Shelley about how she came to work with glass. I wasn't any good at art at school and I really didn't like school anyway. Um, so I pretty much ran away from home but found myself through various circumstances working in Paris as an illustrator and I just realised how much I loved making a living working with my hands and so I decided to apply to the Grands Écoles in, in Paris and put myself through a, a crammer the kind of to get through the exams because I really didn't know what I was doing at all so I worked as an illustrator to earn a living through that but at that time I was lucky enough to be in a world where you didn't have to pay your tuition fees if you could get in then you were supported I didn't have any other bursary I didn't have um, a grant but I certainly didn't have to pay for tuition which meant that I was able to go to a wonderful art school in Paris and train in textiles and when I came out of that college I got work organising collections of fabrics for some of the big um, stores like Printemps, Galerie Lafayette. And my illustration colleagues and friends and clients had started to become quite big deals in the French banks. And they were interested in branding themselves. And so, but again, by another amazing set of circumstances and meetings, I was able to go to the States to work on the redesign of the Visa logo. I think I was a bit of a Trojan horse. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And I spent two amazing years in San Francisco working as the coordinator for the global redesign of the Visa logo. And after a couple of years there, I realised that I loved Europe and that's where I wanted to be. And so I came back to the UK and started to work for branding agencies here in London. I worked for Landor, I worked for Coley Portobello. I worked for and working on international clients like um, Sonia Ericsson and Shell and Cancer Research UK and loving that. Um, I was in the kind of business lounge all the time. and <laughs> But I then had a couple of really bad head injuries from my bike and oh. got... ME, basically. I couldn't get up at all. 
Um, and it took me five or six years to get over that. Um, but I was lucky enough, and I know that many people don't, but I was very, very lucky to be amazingly well supported. Um, and I managed to work my way through it somehow. I know that say, I've, I feel as if I'm very, very fortunate because I know that it's not just a question of hard work. It's just some people are lucky enough to get through and some people just struggle for many, many years. But when I got strong enough to work again and the agency I was working for were, were kind enough to keep my job open, I realised that I didn't want to really do that anymore. Um, and I had started as part of my recovery. I'd learnt, taught myself how to use Photoshop and how to use a digital camera because I wasn't strong enough to draw anymore. The rest of my life had pretty much fallen apart. The relationship, everything had fallen apart. So I left London and went to live in Bristol and did an MA in printmaking there. And I was able to gather all the scans of my brain and my eyes and all the stuff that I'd done where people were trying to work out what on earth was going on in there. And it wasn't obvious what was going on there. I just kind of couldn't get up. So I started to make prints using this, these various levels of scans of my brain and how I looked on the outside and how I looked on the inside. And I realised that that was something I'd been doing as a branding consultant when you look at an organisation from the outside and from the inside and see how they fit or, or really fail to. And it was very close to my experience of having ME also. And I realised I didn't understand how the visual system worked. How on earth is it that the gaze works? How do we make sense of what's out there from such a rudimentary, amazing, but quite rudimentary set of sig signals that we're getting from our eyeballs? So... I cycled every morning past the Bristol Eye Hospital and used my kind of corporate skills <laughs> to meet the guy who ran the cornea transplant bank. And he was kind enough to let me in. And it turned out that the morning that I was there, they'd had a donation of a cornea. And I was able to watch that being prepared. And it just led to me experimenting with vitreous material and embedding prints. I developed a technique to put prints inside the glass thanks to extraordinary encouragement and help from the National Glass Centre in Sunderland and a couple of very generous people who let me sleep on their floors and <laughs> hang around in the hot shop and gave me time and in exchange for me teaching them what I knew. So that basically begun my love affair with glass because it's, it's beautiful and it's versatile but it also allows you to play with perception and illusion in a way that's really surprising and I think we take for granted the fact that when we look in the mirror we can see things behind us and in front of us and things are flipped upside down or the wrong way around and we live in a world bristling and brimming with extraordinary illusions you put a straw in a glass of water and it bends and you don't think about it anymore but it really is a remarkable phenomenon and so for me glass is kind of everyday magic and I was lucky enough to get a residency in Farnham, worked as a cleaner while I while I kind of taught myself some more stuff about glass. And I got a little bit of Arts Council funding to write down what I knew about printing glass. And then that led to a very generous offer from some very dear old friends to me to fund a couple of years at the RCA to do a PhD, well, to do an MPhil. And then I was lucky enough to get government funding to, do a, to finish that off into a PhD. And that PhD was all about illusion and about using glass to create particularly I became fascinated by um, illusions of space because quite a lot is known about how we don't need much information about faces in order to make a face we just need two dots and a line and that's enough but actually our sense of space is a much more um, subtle and embodied phenomenon and you can use glass to create some really unexpected and rich tricks that's led to work with psychologists and neurologists where we place 
illusions basically in panels that you can walk on on the floor and you can change where people walk you can change how they feel about how they walk you can change their posture and I love playing with that with such an everyday material which creates such a sort of a compelling and unexpectedly disconcerting experience so while I was at the RCA I was interested in space and that became interested in projected space. You start to shine light through an object just to see if it's shiny or if it's broken and suddenly you realise it's making the most extraordinary patterns and that that led to an ongoing collaboration with a crystallographer, a remarkable crystallographer and then some mathematicians and then some physicists and then some composers and so I'm currently in conversation with a remarkable woman who works on hearing and the ear because of the way that light and sound are so closely linked. So... I suppose it's just been a question of following, being curious and finding a material that is endlessly versatile and and beautiful and lively and allows you to express not only some of the sort of physical qualities of, of our embodied experience, but also some of the metaphysical and philosophical questions that we might ask about what truth is and where we are and why we're here. Beautiful. Well, from such a fantastically eloquent description of glass, let's get down and dirty into the science of it and define exactly what is this material that we're talking about. What is glass? In the past, we broadly thought of glass as something transparent with a particular molecular structure, a particular lattice, which was disordered compared to ordered lattices like a quartz. But as we've got more and more sophisticated in the way we formulate glass, um, the, the, the kinds of things that we put together to create the optical and material properties of glass to allow us to create a, the front of a skyscraper or fibre optic cable or a, a, a sponge-like lattice that we can embed in the body as a piece of bone, all of those different types of glass are now engineered in the most remarkable way. And so the category of glass has really exploded. And I think someone called this the age of glass. And so I think my understanding of what defines glass is what we call an amorphous solid. So it's a, a disordered lattice with a particular way of behaving at different temperatures, which instead of, as other materials are, where there are points of change of state, Glass is constantly changing as the temperature or the other conditions change. And so that's why we call it a supercooled liquid, because in our current environment, as, as your the glass in the dishwasher, it is solid. But actually, at some in some way, you could also say that it is liquid because it has the potential to move at any moment. OK, so as, as you were, for example, to heat it up, it would become more and more liquid, but there'd be no one defined point where you said, right, it's melted and now it's a liquid. Exactly right. Yeah. Now we have materials which are hybrid glass and metal, hybrid glass and ceramic, hybrid glass and other materials in a way that really wasn't imaginable before. So I think that this category of glass has just exploded into a broad category of materials which are amorphous solids which have no fixed point at which their state changes. Yeah, as, a, as someone with a background in material science, we think of, well, we tend to describe things as being glassy rather than glasses. So a glassy material, as you say, would be anything that's an amorphous solid. So actually some metals can form amorphous solids and technically that would make them a glass. Certain ceramics, I think porcelain has a certain element of being amorphous as well. And we tend to think of that as, as a ceramic. So it's the, the lines are quite um, blurred between what is a glass and what isn't. So I was really interested in your interpretation. Yeah. 
You've got some really unique perspectives into the science and the art of this material. And as I've been thinking about glass and its history, it struck me that actually glass as a material has impacted science really quite profoundly throughout its history. And the converse might also be true, that some of the science has perhaps influenced the art, certainly recently. What's your perspective on that? How do you think art and science have been intertwined with this material throughout history? I think there are a couple of ways of thinking about it. There's a kind of practical perspective in which the ability to make lenses and bottles and um, other pieces of kit that allow you to carry out particular experiments, whether it be aesthetically, um, like drawing perspective using a mirror in order to flatten a three-dimensional space onto a two-dimensional plane. Photography, which allows you to capture light on a perfectly flat panel of glass which has been coated with silver salts and and on today's projection and video and virtual reality where glass plays an absolutely vital role in our in the way we view not only our artworks but also our science and so i think that glass as a material has played an instrumental role in just getting the science done and actually getting the art done as well so i think there's a there's kind of a practical thing there. I think there's also more of a philosophical idea also that glass might have contributed both to science and to art, and that's to do with forms of knowledge, how you, what you think truth is and what you can see and how you understand proof and evidence. And the Jesuits were fascinated by glass because they would take these optical toys to the heathen they were trying to convert, and they would take a lens which would allow you to see two things at the same time or see something flip upside down or see something suddenly projected or see something utterly distorted. And they would, their discourse would say, look, you can't believe your eyes. Look how easily we are fooled by the kind of shiny things of this world. So believe in God, you know, believe in, believe in something that is invisible because the visible is utterly unreliable and let us show you how unreliable that is. And so glass has played a role in, in theatre and in ways of thinking about, about knowledge that I think are key both to science and, and to art. And I think the early alchemists, for example, were suddenly able to watch their experiments happen and so things that were happening at the bottom of a crucible, you could see them happening and you could see whether they had happened and whether they hadn't happened. And th- so science's theatre suddenly became, you, you see these, these extraordinary sort of operating theatres and um, like the Royal Society, these amazing spaces which are designed as a piece of theatre and you'd bring your scientific glass equipment and you would say, look, nothing up my sleeves. This is a condenser. I'm going to put this here and I'm going to put this there. I'm going to put the rabbit in there and I'm going to put this in. And, you know, if a dove pops out there, you'll have seen it change. And I think that was a really vital moment. And it linked at the same time. Some of these scientific instruments really were happening about the same time as um, first printing of the Bible. I mean, it's part of a whole sense of a democratisation of knowledge and information and a sense that proof was important and that... It was something to strive for and something to demand in your conversations, both with theologians and politicians and with scientists and I guess with artists also. Yeah, I love that. So the fact that it's literally a transparent material meant that suddenly science could be transparent for people because they could see what was going on and they could kind of see that there was no 
magic or trickery involved. At the same time, the idea of um, the mirror and seeing yourself and seeing others in the mirror has been something that's been part of, you know, people like Shakespeare talk very eloquently about it, but the idea that you... Um, you define your identity through the mirror now. Now with sort of selfies and and, and cameras, there's that we our, our mirror is 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 our mobile phone. But mm. the use of glass to um, to see yourself. What there's a project I've been working on um, on mirror symmetry, and Pasteur 170 years ago uh, noticed that polarized light was bent in one way or another through um, tartaric acid crystals, and he was he discovered this remarkable chirality or mirror symmetry in nature and noticed that all proteins were left-handed, for example. And he wrote, Charles Dodson wrote the um, Alice Through the Looking Glass. And this book is full of allusions to what's true and not what's not true, what's of this world and what's not of this world. And the mirror symmetry metaphor has been something that people have been using in different ways through science and through art to um, understand and think about the natural and the unnatural in a way that I think is quite interesting. And glass gives you a way of experimenting with that that's physically available to all of us. And we do it every time we brush our teeth. <laughs> that's true. Mirror symmetry is something really important. You mentioned earlier crystallography. That's a really important way of describing the way that atoms all stack up in these crystalline structures, which is a huge part of studying materials, is trying to understand the ways that atoms behave and the way that they mirror each other. And they prefer to do that in these, um, yeah, in these crystal structures. I suppose in today's world and perhaps into the future, Glass has allowed us to, for example, go up into space. I mean, it was only when we could make these very ex these extraordinary glassy materials, which worked as shields or which as windows, both for submarine exploration and, um, and and for space exploration. And now, when we look at Google glasses and those sorts of technologies, I think it's it's a really glass is 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 revealing and concealing in in in, in equal measure. And I think it's worth. It's it's a very exciting time to be thinking about glass, but also to be demanding that glass continues to be a transparent medium and a medium of um, of democracy rather than of, of secrecy sometimes. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting that you should say Google Glass because I was thinking as we were talking that glass has almost become digitised now. Mm. And I always think it's funny how with iPhones and, and other phones are available, but you so often see the cracked screens of iPhones. Mm. And I think I am right about this. Maybe some other iPhone engineers can tell me I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that an iPhone would work if the screen was plastic because it's a, it's a conductive film over the top, which is what makes the touchscreen work. Why do we demand that glass is on the screen when it so often isn't the best material to use? Very often people say, why don't you make that in plastic, you know? what you're doing is so heavy and it's expensive and but the problem with plastic is that it scratches really easily and glass doesn't I mean glass does scratch but the surface almost heals I think that they um they use glass which is which has a slightly it's sort of almost like a self-healing surface so if you think about a plastic where you're rubbing your finger across it all the time and it's in your pocket and stuff it would get very quickly really it'd be like a sort of a Tupperware box it would be quite um grim it, it, would, it would go grey and it would get scratched very easily. Whereas yeah. glass is, is, although we think of it as impossibly fragile, and yes, I mean, we've all broken screens, but actually as a surface, it's surprisingly resilient. And, and it's also, glass is, is much more stable under different temperatures and under different conditions. So with plastic, I mean, sometimes you find that the phone is heated up a bit or, and I think True. that plastic is, is less dimensionally stable. So I'm, I'm just assuming that... 
in the trade-off between fragility and kind of resilience, glass wins and has won so far. But perhaps there will be a plastic technology that's going to overtake it. I yeah, don't know. maybe. I was hoping you were going to say that it's aesthetics and that we all just intuitively prefer glass to plastic, but maybe that comes into it as well. I think, I think that might... I mean, there, there is something about the feeling of glass that is kind of coolness that is mm. that is quite distinctive i think when you um, when you drink from a plastic cup or a wine glass you there's a an experience that is different and i think that we still think of our mobile phones as something quite precious mm. and it is an object that we interact with a lot and i think it it operates as a piece of jewelry in a way that a plastic object like a key ring just or key fob just doesn't offer you that yeah that's true and actually thinking about the back of an iphone as well they've stuck with the anodized aluminium when you know plastic also could have could have worked i suppose maybe there's a weight value in there as well Mm. and, and an aesthetic value as well yeah hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. My next question is, maybe we've already discussed it a little bit. How do you feel about how glass is used today? In the studio glass movement, basically people were making things. They were making kind of great, huge, gloopy glass vases and all sorts of stuff. But they were, and figurative work all of a sudden, they sort of were stepping away from functional stuff into some kind of absolutely bonkers, gorgeous, lush sculpture stuff. But it, they were still things rather than installations. And the world of buying glass and making glass and learning how to make glass was very much, pretty much kind of extension of the craft world. And... I suppose relatively recently, people have started to work with glass. You don't know how to make it themselves. And so are calling on people who have that training to make glass for them and with them. And so we're seeing a kind of growth from glass as thing into glass as medium of expression alongside all sorts of other materials and systems such as light and performance and the glass is now a screen as well as an object as well as an 
acoustic resonating chamber and it's it's a very exciting time because you no longer need to be think of glass as this very sort of technical material you can think of it as a found object you can think of it as a as an environment rather than this very limited world and I'm watching a new generation of of, of artists play with the material and, and test what it can do and use the language of architecture, use the language of science, use the language of fine art, craft, dance to to work with glass and I think and and, and fashion. And so I think now as a, as a maker or someone interested in glass is a really wonderful moment to be doing that. Mm. Well, so bearing that in mind, I'd love to hear more about your scientific collaborations that you've done in the past. I came to glass because I was interested in using it to understand how the eye worked. I started working on the kind of hardware of the eye and found that by asking questions of the eye surgeons and the nurses and saying, they said, well, this is the retina. And so, so where does it fit? Where does, what's the edge of it? You know, if I made one, how big would it be? And how does it fit with the bit at the front? And And by just asking those physical questions, I started to begin a sort of a partnership of exploration with these scientists and clinicians who said, well, actually, yeah, how does that work? And <laughs> what what about that bit at the front? And what happens when when the back of the eye inflames? Yeah, it crushes that. No, it's true, it does crush it. So do the bits float off or how does that work? So using glass begun a conversation which is ongoing with scientists where you where I'm able to use what glass does optically and materially to test and explore and explain some of the things they're thinking about and that they hadn't been forced to challenge before in quite the same way. And it's not not necessarily, it's not a provocation so much as a kind of conversation or inquiry, really. So I started off looking at the hardware of vision and then got more interested in the sort of software of vision, so what happens to the signals afterwards. And so I still make work which is about the kind of physical structures of perception and and beginning to work with, um, I've been lucky enough to work with the anatomy department at King's on the anatomy of the body and thinking about prosthetics and, and how you can use a material like glass to understand how the, the hard and the soft bits of the body fit together. So that led to work on the software of, of, of vision and illusions and working with flat planes of glass. And if you put stripes on two bits of glass and offset them slightly, you can create an extraordinary illusion of depth. So that led to some work and some ongoing work with um, psychologists and neurologists on perception of illusion. How do, how do we get that? And is it, it turns out that people with schizophrenia, for example, don't see illusions in the same way we do. So that's an example of a collaboration that grew out of saying, so I know we're all seeing this differently. How different do we have to be to see it differently? And what are the edges of that? And what does healthy look like? And how can we use a... If you put a panel of glass on the floor and line up some cameras so you can see where someone walks you can see someone's steps change mm. depending on whether they're seeing the illusion or not so it's a kind of an embodied experiment and yeah. instead of asking somebody you just watch them and it's a very democratic and open way of, of doing that and it's amazing how compelling it is and you start to veer or you so I've also worked with this idea about projected space and we mentioned crystallography and the way that glass allows you to play with and delight in the shadows that structures make when they're transparent and opaque and, and anything in between. And so I started to experiment with this with this wonderful extra crystallographer on how lattices such as 
the double helix of DNA were discovered. And if you can build something in glass which casts shadows which are analogous to that and perhaps allow someone to see at a physical, you know, at a kind of hand size what's happening at that tiny size. And we became interested in crystalline lattices and then we came across, Brian and I came across, some work on quasi-periodic lattices. And we were lucky enough to go to, I'm always going to lectures and things, I just... The great thing about being in London particularly is that there's always something to go and listen to, mostly for free. So Mm -hmm. I just go and listen and then usually have an interesting chat with someone at the coffee break and come across something I hadn't thought of. But we were lucky enough to go and see, Brian and I went to see Roger Penrose talking about quasi-periodics. We know what periodic is, that's where it repeats, but what about this other thing? How does that work? And Roger had written this amazing book on that, um, well, part of his book, The Emperor's New Mind, about which he touched on that. So I went along and we collared him after the lecture and said, so what do you mean by this quasi-periodic thing? What would that look like? And we can see what it looks like in two dimensions of Penrose tiling, and he'd done a beautiful demonstration using an OHP. So what would it look like? And he said, hmm. And we were lucky enough to meet him several times, and he showed us his drawings, and, and I made the elements of his quasi-periodic packing lattice and we came across all sorts of other literature and it turns out that as he looked at them he went ah no he could he could see things about the symmetry because it was transparent you could see things corresponding across the shape that you couldn't necessarily see from a model from a sort of a diagram or a Mm. or a drawing so that's how these conversations grow and then quasi period we we realized it was it was um this anniversary of Pasteur's discovery of chiral symmetry, and so we got into that. And we came across an amazing Tasmanian mathematician who took up Roger Penrose's challenge of finding a single shape which you can make a quasi-periodic lattice from, but just by integrating mirror symmetry in the markings. So Brian and I had been in conversation with them, and then they we did a workshop at Bush House with printing, and because um, it turns out that Pasteur is a very keen lithographer, which may be why he noticed mirror symmetry and we emailed this wonderful um tasmanian lady and she said you know we're doing this workshop and we're going to build them you know this lattice on the floor and she said oh i've only ever done it on paper can it be done physically um oh i better go and think about that so she went away with a biros and (laughs) and graph paper and sent us back this new way of doing it and it's it had never been done before um because no one had asked and then we came across another thing which allows you to make it in glass. So that's how it works. It's a kind of um, ongoing conversation and using the material and sort of visual properties of glass to try things out and um, learn and show at the same time, which is um, which is endlessly delightful. Yeah, and I think that's a lovely example of how by making things you can gain better insight into the theory of something yeah yeah because I, I got o-level maths badly you know hardly so it's been a way for me to I now feel much more confident with vectors and things because I I know what it looks like because I make them so something else I'm interested in is what current research is going on in glass and what, what are the new things that we'll start to see that are made out of glass and kind of new technologies? I think the category of glass is undergoing this massive and very exciting explosion, both in terms of the range of ways it's being used creatively and culturally and the way it's being used in science, particularly in optics and nanophotonics and in the past, the formulation of glass meant that it was 
you could use it, but at a relatively large scale. And now we're able to formulate this material in such a way that it can operate at the wavelength of light scale, which allows you to use it in new and unimagined ways, both outside and inside the body. Every year there's this thing called the Glass Society of Glass Technology Conference, and it used to be about 50 of us in a room in Cambridge talking a little bit about medieval glass, a little bit about test tubes and a little bit about glass art. And now it's become this massive, very sophisticated, very varied, multi-session conversation about the extraordinary ways that glass is changing the way we live. So we're looking at things like smart buildings, we're looking at things like the way about transport, we're looking at communication, we're looking at interaction, we're looking at um, photonics, we're looking at every single part of our lives is being touched in glass in a way that we hadn't imagined before. And so I think that if you ask where we're going to see it, I think I'd probably put the question back and say, where we aren't, where aren't we going to see it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's going to be impossible for listeners not to get excited by glass. Having listened to this podcast, are there ways that the everyday person can go and experience glass, be that at a gallery or maybe at a make space? How can people get involved with this material? People are traditionally quite afraid of glass. I mean, from the earliest age, you go, oh, that's glass, don't touch it. You know, it's been something that people have not felt confident to play with at all and yet it really is a very forgiving and delightful material that you can work with at any scale and at any levels that you you wish so I think at its simplest you can get inserts for microwave ovens called hot pots and you can get some coloured glass and assemble it and put it in the microwave like a jacket potato but for four minutes and the glass fuses together and you can watch the alchemy of glass in your kitchen and make beautiful little earrings and all kinds of stuff like that. You can also get cheap electric dremels and decorate glasses. I'm, I make things for my nieces, for example, um, and my godchildren where I just write a poem for them or, or draw a picture on, on, a, on a tumbler bought from Sainsbury's and it's it's as simple as that. So at its simplest, or you can use the Dremel to engrave on the back of a mirror from Ikea and create your own personalised glass object. So mm-hmm. the, 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 the possibility of sort of hacking existing things are absolutely endless. I suppose if you want to then move on to the next stage of that, you can go to specialist glass centres, places like the Glass Hub in Trowbridge. There are a number of spaces. There's the National Glass Centre in Sunderland. There is um, the Northlands Glass Centre in Scotland where you can take short courses, weekend courses, beginner courses, because the main institutions which used to teach glass no longer can afford to put it on because as a as a material it takes a little while to learn how to make it it's relatively dangerous uh you need to run kilns and they're expensive to run so most of the institutions now would much rather um give you a computer screen and a, and a desk and possibly a library than the technical and kind of material support you need to really get any good at the material so I think the way to go now if you're interested in the material and you want to have a go at it yourself is to find one of these regional centres run by fellow enthusiasts who 
will offer you a day taster or a week or a month. If you then, if you can afford a little bit more, there are places like the London Glass Blowing Centre um, on Bermondsey High Street, where actually you can go any day of the week and watch a remarkable group of makers scoop liquid glass out of a furnace and make magic in front of your eyes. And and you can obviously then buy what they make there also. But that that really isn't the point. They're a remarkably sort of generous and creative and lively bunch. So um, I. I encourage anybody who's in in London or able to go to London, it's right by London Bridge, to just go along and, and watch and chat. Um, and they do offer classes, uh, one-to-one classes there. So that's another way to do it. Yeah, well, listeners, you know where to go if you're interested in, in looking more at glass. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Shelley. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, what's your website so that people can go and have a look at your creations and how can people find you online? It's uh, www.shellyjames.co.uk. So, yes, thank you for coming on the podcast, Shelley. Thank you for having me. So that was Shelley James. A huge thank you to Shelley for coming on the show. My hope for this podcast was that in talking to artists and makers and other materials enthusiasts, that it would open my eyes to materials beyond the realm of just equations and test tubes. Well, Shelley certainly delivered on that front, and I hope that you as a listener are also getting lots out of these conversations too. So if you've enjoyed this and any of our other episodes, then please do review the podcast on iTunes. Don't forget, you can always get in touch on Twitter and tell us what you're enjoying about the podcast. We are at Real Talk, that's R-I-A-L Talk. So until next time, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time on Real Talk. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.